and welcome back to the Agents of Change and Environmental Justice podcast, a partnership between Environmental Health News and Columbia University Mailman School of Public Health. I'm Brian Binkowski, your host, senior editor at Environmental Health News and the editor of Agents of Change. We are here every two weeks speaking to leaders in the environmental justice field. So please find us on your favorite podcast platforms. Also, be sure to check out our most recent essay from fellow Nisalo Berry on ehn.org titled A Radical Solution to Make U.S. Affordable Housing Healthy and Community Driven. Also, I wanted to remind folks to find us and say hi to us on socials. Search for Agents of Change in Environmental Justice and stay up to date on new research, essays, podcast episodes, and other happenings. All right, my guest today is Dr. Robbie Parks, an assistant professor in environmental health sciences at Columbia University. He's also a current fellow, and we talk about climate justice, the mental health impacts of climate change and extreme weather, his love of football, or what we call here soccer. And Robbie also graces us with our first live musical performance on the pod. Enjoy. Right. I am super excited to be joined by Robbie Parks. Robbie, how are you doing today? Very well, thank you. How are you, Brian? I'm doing excellent. And where are you coming at us from? Uh, I'm in New York City or Brooklyn, to be precise. Uh, we're at home and uh, that's where I live and work, New York City. So here I am. Excellent. And you are not from there, of course. Maybe people have already picked up a slight accent. Uh You are from the UK, having been raised in London. Tell me about your upbringing. Tell me about the beginnings. Yes, very perceptive. I am indeed not from New York City. I am a transplant from the UK and London. So, you know, London was an amazing place to grow up. Uh, I grew up specifically right in the middle in a place called Pimlico. So uh, I'll just give a quick shout out to my local area there. And I really... Loved growing up there. You know, it was sort of, in some ways, people might say at a first pass, it was like New York City in that you could really feel the world in the city in lots of different ways. Like it was very multicultural and it still is. Uh, lots of different uh, things to do. You can never be bored if you, you know, they say tired of London, tired of life. So, uh, you know, really there was always stuff to do. Um, I really had a great time and lots of opportunity uh, from you know, the education system and was really fortunate to get a couple of uh, really good breaks there that changed my life. And, you know, though I grew up without, you know, huge amounts of means, I most of the time I didn't really think about that. I was just really excited to, to be in such a big and vibrant city. And I think my friends and family would probably agree that it's turned me into a real city person. I am really comfortable in the city. So, yeah, I loved growing up in London. Well, we uh, we have had the chance to meet, and I feel like you're a kindred soul, but I will say that is one place that we part ways. Uh, I am not a city person, so I'm glad I'm glad there's some of you out there so uh, places like where I live can stay remote and, and sparse. So you mentioned London's multiculturalism, and I think that's an interesting point because um, maybe I'm pigeonholing my fellow Americans, but I think there's this misinformed notion that all British people are royal or wealthy, and London is a uh, uh, full of that. And it's not, of course. So, when you came to the states, how would you describe that transition, and if you felt that coming here? 
Well, you know, just to be clear, all British people do know at least one royal member of the family. So, uh, you know, we are very well uh, versed and we do often go for tea at Buckingham Palace. But that aside, in all seriousness, uh, yet it is a very vibrant, diverse place, London in particular, but also many parts of the UK. Um, And I sort of came over after my PhD, finished in, in late 2019, and you know, I think I was quite naive, really, with the transition, because I'd never lived anywhere else, really, apart from the UK. And so I thought coming to New York would be relatively easy in the grand scheme of things, because, you know, one of the main languages being English, I thought it'd be very straightforward. But, you know, the transition was anything but straightforward. I found it incredibly stressful and traumatic, especially because I didn't really know anyone when I moved to New York. But also, you know, large parts of my life was still uh, in, in, in London, in the UK. And, you know, I thought that when I moved, I knew that 2020 was coming, but in 2019, what everyone was thinking about in 2020 was the presidential election. And that's all everyone was talking about, you know, when I first moved and, uh, little did we all know, uh, that that wouldn't really even be one of the biggest events of 2020, but it would be merely one of the top five probably and so you know the transition into uh, the pandemic really was a real shock to everyone but for me uh, away from familiar friends and family I would say that that was particularly difficult and I was really blessed and and fortunate to have so many new and good friends that I'd made in New York City in a large part because of you know meeting people through uh, my university there And uh, so, you know, in terms of the other elements of it where I think I was naive, I think on a first pass, you know, New York City and London are quite similar. You know, there's similar populations, uh, similar sort of multicultural nature. They've both got subways. Uh, You know, one is better than the other, I would say, but then I'm biased towards London probably still. Uh, (laughs) And uh, but really, I think culture and society are actually quite different when you scratch below the surface I think one of the first things I realized, you know, the silly example is I, I needed to fill in tax forms before I even started work. And that was incredibly confusing. But really, I think that there's just a different sort of flavor on the way that people behave. I think, you know, the, the old cliche with, with New Yorkers, that they're trying to get somewhere all the time. And that really is the, the, the sort of case. And I found that that was, you know, very different from London, where people are in a rush, but uh, I think there's a certain dynamism in New York and a certain, uh, I don't know what the word is, but maybe you might say grittiness that, uh, that, that isn't really necessarily everywhere in London. And I think that my friend uh, Russ told me that something I remember about New York, he said, and I still to this day use it to sort of justify why I live here. And he said that, you know, it makes the easy things hard and the hard things easy. And I think, you know, getting groceries can can take half a day. But, uh, you know, if you want to see world-class art and, and science, it's right here and it's easy to get. So uh, that's the way I think about it. And that kind of helps me live day to day here. I've never heard that. And that's, that's so true. What a great, what a great way to put it. And you're mentioning, I didn't, I actually didn't know that you moved there during uh, pre pre pandemic right before. And when you mentioned a difficult transition, I, I find cities can be some of the most lonely places. Um, despite the fact that you're surrounded yeah. by billions of people and it's kind of a, a little bit of 
screws with your mind a little bit because uh, I had that in Chicago a little bit, just feeling very lonely, but surrounded by a lot of people. So I'm glad you've found your footing. And of course, your research has helped us understand that pandemic a little bit. And we are going to get into that soon. But I wanted to know what is a defining moment or event that shaped your identity up to this point? Yeah, what a what a great question. I think, you know, there are many things in everyone's life every day that shape your identity. Uh, if I had to reduce it to, to one life event, uh, it would probably be, you know, in relation to my parents uh, passing away. Uh, my, my dad passed away when I was uh, relatively young in my early teens and, and my mum uh, passed away a few years ago. And um, both events, looking back and the longer I think about it and the longer I, I sort of uh, write my research and do my research and, and go through my career and just in general, my interactions with everyone, I feel like it's a lens that bereavement and that grief from from both my parents' loss, I feel like that's really a lens through which I see a lot of my life. And that's personal and professional as well. I think it's influenced a lot uh, from, from my professional life. And I think I'm looking forward to sharing uh, the essay uh, um, that I, I've written with, with you because I think that that will sort of help um, as well, put flesh on the bone there. But, yeah, definitely sort of those bereavements for me. Well, thanks so much for sharing that. And um, I, I don't know, uh, I don't know when your essay will come out, but I encourage everybody to read it. Uh, you should be reading all the essays, but Robbie's in particular has uh, really stuck with me as we've started the editing process. So as I mentioned, now you are studying all kinds of important things. And I want to start with COVID. Um, because right. we're still dealing with it here in 2023, unfortunately. So you're broadly, you're researching how environmental hazards impact the world's population, both now and in the future. And you've researched the pandemic and its responses from different angles and in different countries. And I'm wondering if you could just kind of share some of the more important and interesting bits of research you found and how it can or should inform us as we still deal with it today. Yeah, so so just to, to be clear, I, I would be speaking uh, from a population health expertise perspective. So, you know, of course, I, I'm not an expert at all in, in sort of the medical uh, side of things, but really from a demography slash population health side of things. But, I, you know, I do have a voice and based on my research on what we found uh, from official death records, essentially, in, in many different countries and the way that we would uh, and we have analysed COVID-19's impact on public health is through excess deaths and excess deaths in a nutshell are what happens to the number of deaths now relative to similar periods in the past. Now, of course, we all know that lots of people died from COVID and it is a tragedy and it's an ongoing tragedy, this global pandemic. However, the way you would manage, I'll start again. However, the way you would manage uh, that impact uh, really uh, is a function of, you know, the the infrastructure of recording deaths in each uh, country, and that varies. However, you know, assuming you have reliable death records, you can create models and design models to measure the difference between the expected number of deaths at one point and the uh, actual number of deaths at that particular point. And of course, during many parts of uh, the uh, COVID-19 pandemic, a lot more people died than otherwise would have had there been no pandemic. So why did, did that vary between countries and why did that, in fact, vary between states? Well, of course, policies matter. 
So, you know, we're seeing a sort of unfortunate natural experiment. And we did see that in the United States, especially over the first couple of years, how different policies and different behaviors would impact something like an infectious disease uh, like COVID-19. And so, you know, lockdowns and other non-pharmaceutical interventions made a critical difference, especially at the beginning. And so, you know, in the first half of 2020, if I invite you or dare you to to go back to that particular time, especially in the United States, you know, uh, over half of excess deaths really were at the beginning half of 2020 for countries like England and Wales and Scotland and Spain. Whereas in the second half of 2020, you know, that's when the bulk of excess deaths in that year happened in Bulgaria, Croatia, other countries in Central and Eastern Europe. And so why was that? It was largely a function before vaccines, remember, the the pressure and the scale of lockdowns and the speed at which and the timing of which those lockdowns were placed. And, and, you know, that is inevitably a political decision as well as a scientific position. And that goes, of course, in terms of, uh, you know, the United States, too. And, you know, behavioral science is probably, I would say, an underestimated element of the way we understood the pandemic before it happened and what and in the early stages because the idea of telling people a pandemic was happening we thought probably was enough to make people sort of think we have to lock down but now what we realize is there's lots of unintended consequences to those ideas and the and people's belief in science is really really important and of course there are forces that don't always help with the belief in science, but it's sort of incumbent on scientists to to sort of understand that we need people to believe the science that we produce, and that's super important. And uh, of course, vaccines matter, and that's relevant to it. I'm not a vaccine expert, but you know the v- impact of vaccines has been clear. But really, if we're talking about non-pharmaceutical measures, then preparedness matters. That's before, during, and after a pandemic. There are lots of lessons to learn there in terms of what politics and what the social fabric can do if we work together. Now, of course, in the United States and you know other sort of high-income countries. Uh, you know, vaccines are readily available. Uh, and so, you know, the latest sort of insights I would talk about really would be would be in younger ages and how COVID-19 is impacting children and adolescents. And, you know, recent research that I've been involved with is really highlighting how important it is to focus on the health of our children and adolescents with respect to COVID-19, because it is one of the top 10 causes of death for most age groups uh, below 19. And in fact, the death rates uh, for many of those uh, age groups for COVID-19 pre-vaccination was higher than many of the worst regarded diseases like measles were before vaccines were available for those diseases. So it's really important to frame it in a historical context of how dangerous COVID-19 is, even for people we regard as safe from COVID-19 is is still a very dangerous, potentially deadly uh, uh, virus that we need to contain. I don't want to give listeners whiplash here, but you are studying lots of things, not just COVID. And I want to switch gears to tropical cyclones, which I've noticed uh, when I was looking at your your body of work. So you're focusing a lot of your effort here now. And we think I think we 
in terms of infrastructure damage is the first place my mind goes when I think of tropical cyclones. But can you walk us through why this is also a public health and a climate justice issue? Of course, you know, when a tropical cyclone, hurricane, typhoon, cyclone, whatever it's called anywhere in the world, you know, life can be destroyed by a tropical cyclone. And that includes, you know, infrastructure from buildings, of course. That's what people think of when they see in the press uh, the, the, the tropical cyclone having laid waste to a particular area or flooded a particular area or destroyed buildings, et cetera, et cetera. And there's no doubt that the damage to property is one of the huge influences of tropical cyclones. But, you know, as I said, life can be destroyed very quickly by a tropical cyclone or actually in slow motion over months and years. And so the impacts can, on public health, the impacts can be short to midterm to long term. Uh, you know, in the sort of hours and days after a cyclone has arrived at a particular place, there are direct impacts on public health. Now, they could be uh, deadly or, the, in fact, they can damage your health but not kill you. And the first obvious example would be from injuries for electrocution, clearing up debris, being hit by flying debris. Um, then, of course, you've got a multitude of other causes which sort of span into the, the days, weeks and months and even years after uh, a cyclone's hit without appropriate recovery. And that can include infectious and parasitic diseases, cardiovascular diseases, neuropsychiatric conditions and respiratory diseases. And I'll take a few in turn. You know, in, infectious diseases can, can spread from compromised drinking water uh, sanitation, uh, damage to water pipes, which is related to infrastructure uh, and disruption to treatment plants. Whereas cardiovascular diseases, you know, increases to heart attacks. I'll start again. Cardiovascular diseases uh, have, have increased related to heart attacks, you know, cardiac arrests uh, from physical overexertion. You know, people with pre-existing uh, conditions who are taken, unfortunately, over the edge to death uh, from the stress and overexertion of tropical cyclones. And of course, traumatic psychological consequences with a high prevalence of anxiety and mood disorders uh, evident after, you know, American hurricanes such as Harvey and Katrina uh, and increased risk of uh, dementia uh, and decreased survival rates of people living with those conditions after uh, tropical cyclone disasters and other similar ones. And of course, you've got respiratory diseases disrupted from dust kicked up after tropical cyclones but really one of the the main issues of, of interest is is for me uh, is really the power network and how robust that is to uh, attacks from disasters and, and so disrupted power supplies can disrupt all sorts of care including breathing aids and of course we all know that you know cyclones are essentially stochastic events they're random but where they tend to hit uh, you know, both is biased towards hitting more disadvantaged areas and historically disadvantaged communities, both in the US, but also in the world. Um, but also when those places are hit, they are really unprepared or less well prepared than other areas. And in terms of the money that goes in afterwards, uh, you know, it's harder to to make sure that that money goes to the places where it's needed most. And I think that's why really it's an issue of environmental and climate justice. So the disruption is can be short term. It could be 
but it can also be a matter of decades, and I think you're seeing that in some areas of America too. What are some of the ways, and I'm thinking about the U.S. in particular here, just picking up on the notion of this as a justice issue, that our responses is lacking? Where could we do better? And do you have thoughts how, how we could better serve these communities in dealing with the aftermath of these storms? Absolutely. I think, you know, though cyclones will inevitably arrive each year, uh, the worst consequences on society and public health are often avoidable with an equitable long-term approach. So, you know, resilience to tropical cyclones is actually built over a long time. And so the depth of preparation is really a function of the amount of time needed. Uh, And so robust societal infrastructure, including social services, housing stock, power distribution, and the recognition that, you know, in the United States and elsewhere, one tropical cyclone or one hurricane can can affect communities differently. And that those differences are driven, you know, in large part by demographic, economic, social factors, you know, in non-affluent communities, impacts are often exacerbated due to institutional neglect and historical racism. And of course, the recovery is, is also often very inequitable with federal aid and and private insurance particularly difficult to obtain by black and low-income individuals compared with other individuals. Now, of course, people talk about evacuation as a useful way to provide short-term relief from a cyclone, but again, it's a very short-term fix uh, and, you know, what people come back to may not be what they left in any way, shape or form. But I also want to stress the point that evacuation is, is, is a luxury in some ways, because, you know, even if you've got an adequate early warning system, a family may not have the financial resources or adequate transport or indeed the faith and belief that their belongings are safe. Uh, and, you know, others are also, you know, expected to stay because of long term health conditions for themselves or their close loved ones. And it's a very reasonable uh, expectation that they wouldn't leave because they're actually worried that leaving may imperil people's health more than uh, actually uh, staying. And so, you know, with evacuation, I would say this, it's a luxury for some people. But, you know, if you evacuate, the next question I would say is where to? And so some simply have uh, nowhere to go and cannot leave. And so in summary, really, you know, all of the all of the above is important. You know, resilience, uh, recovery and, uh, you know, understanding that people in place uh, require uh, resilience. And it's not just moving people around, which is going to solve the public health impact of disasters like tropical cyclones. One area of research that is really interesting to me, and I'm starting to see more coverage both in the scientific community and in kind of the media writ large, is the link between environmental insults and mental health. And I'm sure there are some of these with tropical cyclones as well. But can you talk about some of your work examining the impacts of high temperatures on things like assault, suicide, alcohol use, and other kind of mental health downstream impacts? Yeah, absolutely. You know, of course, it's related to tropical cyclones, but there are other things, you know, which are known as ambient exposures, if you like, like pollution and temperature, which are essentially there all the time. 
And there's more and more research on, on the impacts of those on, on mental health related outcomes. Now, of course, for me, uh, I'll talk about what I've done now in, in you know, in previous published work uh, that I uh, led uh, in part for my PhD, I researched how anomalously warm temperatures uh, were associated in the United States with suicides and assaults. And I found that there was indeed a robust association, which has actually been borne out by other studies uh, around the world and in the United States uh, over the past few years. And, you know, what I found, which is very interesting, really, is that we predicted from our analysis that the majority of the additional suicides and assaults would be largely concentrated in, in younger males. And so there's an element of trying to understand what would be driving that particular vulnerability in in those people um and you know it's an emerging subject in on the global stage as well and so i've been working in a working group with the who on a report on the sort of impacts of climate change on mental health worldwide and you see you know the idea that you know having scarcer resources having higher temperatures puts stresses on the body and the mind which uh, would potentially lead to more uh, conflict and more sort of uh, violent behavior and actually more despair. And that's sort of related to the idea that, you know, feeling like you've got nothing, feeling like you've got a loss of the place that you call home, your friends and family, uh, you know, that all of that ties together to sort of highlight the idea and really the concept that climate change impacts not just physical health, but also mental health. I can imagine this work can be uh, a mental stressor for you. <laughs> You're looking at things that uh, COVID deaths, climate change, cyclones. I mean, these are these are heavy things. You're looking at population level impacts. What are you optimistic about? I think, you know, one of the reasons that I probably am still doing the work that I do and have still got body and mind together in some way uh, is because I am, I think, automatically optimistic or by default I'm optimistic. And I think I still hold true the idea that the basic idea really that humans care about each other fundamentally and, and given the choice uh, with, you know, the right availability of those choices, they'll always do the right thing. But, you know, society has constructed it mostly that sometimes we're not given a fair shot, but really generally what I see every day in in day-to-day interactions with people is that, you know, humans do care about each other. So I do have hope about the idea that we can tackle this beast uh, called climate change and and, and other huge problems in the world. And for more on that, I would encourage listeners to check out, I believe the podcast was titled Meet Maria and a COP27 Review, where I spoke with Robbie um, and Alexa White, another fellow, about their experience at COP last year. And Robbie speaks more about kind of some of the things he's optimistic about when it comes to the activist presence um, at some of these larger climate negotiation events. So Robbie, I know you are a football fan or soccer for us uh, (laughs) here in the States. Um, Tell me about who is your favorite team? Because I think that's a big deal where you come from, just like American football would be here. And maybe describe to me and listeners the passion that comes with football fandom in the UK. Yes, so you're completely right that, uh, you know, soccer or football, as we choose to call it, uh, because we do 
touch the ball with the foot, so it kind of makes more sense <laughs> than than American football or, if, or football as you call it here. Uh, uh, but that you know, that's the minor jibe. But really, uh, so my dad <laughs> was from uh, Glasgow, Scotland. So you know, I'm always going to have a soft spot for Celtic uh, football club in in Scotland. But of course, for people who follow uh, football or soccer, they know that. You know, it's actually the UK is one country, but has four nations. And so Scotland has one league or several Scottish leagues and England has the Premier League. And, and you know, I I, I sort of have great admiration for uh, Marcus Rashford of Manchester United as a player and as a person. I think if listeners haven't heard of Marcus Rashford, then uh, I think I'd really recommend looking him up. Not only is an excellent player for, for the England team, but he's also just from what I can tell, just a fantastic person. And, you know, speaking of the England team, I think, you know, really watching the England team makes me nostalgic about the way that we would grow up. We would sort of go to pubs and and drink, you know, a pint of beer while watching the football during World Cups and European Championships. And I think we'd uh, get very excited and invariably uh, we'd uh, be disappointed. And I think that sort of peak (laughs) and trough was very, very... Uh, imprinted in my mind so I've been beaten out of that enthusiasm now surprisingly (laughs) over the past few years the England team has actually been quite good and so you know despite not having won anything still since 1966 yes 1966 is the date that most England fans will will have on their wall uh, when we won the World Cup Uh, it was in England so you know whether or not that was uh, (laughs) played a role I don't know but uh, I think you know the idea that England are you know an ascendant force in football gives me sort of a a bit of solace and and so now I do allow myself to get a little bit excited Um, but you know football stirs a lot of passion in the UK uh, and England in particular as well as other places but it sort of goes hand in hand with me as I said with, with pub culture and so it has Positive implications and negative implications. But for me, I'm going to focus on the positive because it's inherently social. Um, and, you know, I, I am still, you know, if any any listeners have any idea about the best place to do that in New York City from a football fan uh, that replicates the, the English pub experience, I'd be all ears. All that has to exist somewhere. I remember being in New York and finding a bar that catered to Detroit fans. I was there to watch a Tigers game, and it seems like there's everything there, so there has to be a good football bar. Do you get to play in New York? Do you ever get out and uh, and play soccer? Uh, I have now and then, but, you know, really I, I uh, focus on um, trying to find time to do exercise in between work and, and sort of music that – that tends to be alone. So I tend to go on, on a run and through Prospect Park or go to Fort Greene and do exercise. But, you know, when I do see people playing team sports, I always I'm, I am always a little bit envious of the fact that, you know, it's a social event rather than just uh, having to focus on the pain that you're going through. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah. I'm a, I'm a cyclist here and I spent a lot of years as a runner and it was obviously a solo, well, not obviously, you can run with folks, but it was mostly a solo activity training and yes. then I switched to cycling and I ride a lot alone, but I started riding with a group and I look forward ah. to that group, that group ride so much every week. There's something about being around other people that brings out a little competitive spirit and also just makes the time kind of click by. So Absolutely. I, I totally, totally Absolutely. get you there. 
And you mentioned your other hobby, passion, former job maybe is a musician. So tell me <laughs> about what role what role this making music plays in your life now and if it at all intersects with your research and the rest of your professional life. Yeah, so you know, after my undergraduate degree and, and my PhD, I did spend a lot of time really focusing on on, on music and, and trying to build myself as a as a musician with a band. So, you know, music for me really is, you know, it to avoid a cliche or barely avoid a cliche, it's sort of the soundtrack. Music is a soundtrack of, of my life and you know, I mean that whatever I'm doing, I'm always thinking about music. I'm always looking at music uh, reviews. I'm always trying to find new music. I'm always listening to my favorite records while I work. So for me, you know, probably like most people, music has provided a lot of that secure that I, I need in my good times and my bad times uh, and my low times. I think whatever my mood, there's always music for it. And so for me, it's that universal sort of self that I, I always need in my life. And, you know, that sort of originated from, you know, my parents, uh, you know, in Filipino culture, my mom was Filipino, you'd always have a piano in the house, electric piano that tended to be uh, an instrument which gathered dust more than anything else. Um, <laughs> and so, like, it was always the idea that you wanted your your child to learn piano. And so I was lucky enough to, to learn piano, and then I taught myself guitar, and then, when I was 11 or 12, I was in a supermarket in the UK and I saw this um, record called Kid A and I was fascinated by the <laughs> cover. And then I, I was like, mom, who's that? And she had no idea. And then, you know, it turns out it was this band called Radiohead and I, and they're a British band for those of you who haven't heard of them. And uh, for me, they, they really sort of um, provided the compass direction that informed really the rest of my musical taste and, and career. So um, you know, other British bands like Pink Floyd and the Beatles and some other uh, American groups. But really, it sort of starts and ends uh, with Radiohead for me. And so I really love that band. And, uh, you know, I think in terms of my research, it sort of activates a different side of my brain than I use in science. So you, you talk about left and right brain sort of ideas. But I think using the two sides of my brain at different times, it, they kind of uh, merge into each other um, in 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 good ways i think and so the creativity of of music and the creativity of science i think are complementary but also the uh, logical side of i guess the objective side of science can really help me to to sort of think of the way i i write songs as well so so i think you know i don't think there's a direct obvious way in terms of me, you know, playing music at scientific conferences or something but i think in terms of the way that informs my art and science, I think there is something in that. Keeping both activated it really helps me. We might have to do a whole podcast on Radiohead, just a couple of quarter, <laughs> quarter life to midlife uh, dudes talking Radiohead. That's what, that's what the, the podcast world needs, needs another one of those. But I, I love that record. Kid, Kid A is yeah. a fantastic record, as was uh, The Benz was the other one that really, that really stuck to me. Um, I hate to put you on the spot, uh, but I happen to uh. know that there's a guitar around there. And would you be so <laughs> kind as to play us, play us a song? It would be a first for the podcast. Well, I really never thought you'd ask. So, you know, thank you for the invitation. So that, yeah, sure, sure. Why not? Wonderful. Uh, and what is this song called? 
So this is a song uh, I wrote in collaboration with my fantastic partner, uh, Alyssa, who is an excellent fiction writer. But um, we also quickly discovered while collaborating that she's actually a fantastic lyricist. So this song is called uh, Heaven Not Far Away. on the horizon heaven not far away I hope we'll be together someday he Now that I found my way, life's not never ending, heaven not far away. I think we'll be together. Someday Oh, I hope we'll be together Someday Now these walls are gone I can't save Traveling life, I think of all we've left to do. Freckled arms faded, work left undone. We long for love. Follow 
great. Robbie, that was beautiful. Oh, thank you very much. Excellent. Well, thank you so much. We'll, we will make sure to include a link. And before I get you out of here, I just have some last fun questions. Hopefully they're fun. Most of the time they're fun. And these first three, you can just answer with a word or a phrase. If I wasn't a researcher, I would want to be a musician. The best way to spend an hour of free time is playing music. <laughs> I, I, I notice a theme. My favorite concert <laughs> I've been to is? Uh, it's, you know, as I said, Radiohead several times, but if I picked one, it'd probably be at Lollapalooza in Berlin in 2016. And what is the last book you read for fun? You don't have to confine yourself to one word here. I'd love to hear a little bit about it. Uh, so, you know, my favorite author, author of recent times is a British author called Kazuo Ishiguro. And uh, my favorite book of his, which I only really read recently, is Remains of the Day. Uh, and really, it's this very strange English situation. It's about a butler, um, and it's about a butler called Mr. Stevens during the sort of interwar period between the First World War and the Second World War. But really, you know, the reason I love Kazuishi Guru so much is because he sort of deals with issues about loss and yearning um, and covering up that loss and yearning, which is in many ways sort of fundamental to uh, British society, but lots of different societies everywhere. And I, I find the way that he um, sort of writes, which is used, the writing is is filled with with uh, something else. And as I think as you read it, you, you sort of get a sense that there's something coming. And I, I really love uh, that book, Remains of the day. Excellent. Well, Robbie, this has been a lot of fun. I have found myself since I met you and talked to you reading specific environmental articles and thinking to myself, I would love to talk to Robbie about this. And I think that is the highest praise I can give a scientist. And I hope you take it as such. Thank you. So I yeah, hope it's been a pleasure. Thank you. I hope we do get to talk more. And thanks again for doing this. And we will talk soon. Absolutely. Thank you. All right, that's all for this week, folks. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Robbie and his beautiful music that he was so nice to share with us. If you enjoyed this podcast, visit agentsofchangeinej.org. And while you're there, click the donate button to support us. You can also find us on Twitter and Instagram. And please follow us on Spotify, iTunes, or Stitcher, wherever you get your podcasts. And you can listen to this and all past episodes. This podcast was written, recorded, produced, and edited by me with outreach, scheduling, and support from the rest of the team. Dr. Ami Zoda, Dr. Yoshira Ornelas Van Horn, Dr. Vina Singla, Dr. Max Ong, Dr. Lariah Edwards, Summer Ahmad, and Maria Paula Rubiano. Our music is now sung by Poddington Bear. Email our team at agentsofchangeinej at gmail.com and sign up for our monthly newsletter at the program homepage. Thank you so much for joining us. We hope to keep these important conversations on diversity and science and health going. Join me next time when I speak to fellow Alexa White, a PhD candidate in the Department of Ecology and Evolutionary Biology at the University of Michigan. Have a great week, folks.